Hi, this is Giuseppe. Hi, this is Anthony. And you're listening to For the Love of Sophia. A philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. Hey guys, welcome back. Welcome back. Um, today's episode is going to be super exciting. Yeah, and a little bit different. We've been doing a lot of different things lately, right? The Q and A. Yeah. The the guests experimenting, and then we did. We just did the phenomenology, which was a little bit different than what you've been used to Ooh, lately. You just gave a hint. <laughs> oh no, never mind. I thought this no, was coming at first. No, 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 that, no, makes no that's, that's, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's going to be a little bit different, right? That, that was different. Yeah. And today is going to be, we're going to try a different thing as well. We are. But before we get into that, yep. uh, we are live on Patreon. Yes. So now you can support us in different ways, right? Which would be great. Um, so it's patreon.com slash public philosophy project, you know, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And basically you go there and if you guys want to show some love, you could, you know, $2 a month, right? And you get some shout outs to be a... An official lover of Sophia. There you go. You're part of the community now. Yes. And even cooler, if you want to do a little, little bit more, it's $5 a month and you're a level two lover of Sophia. And this gets you the shout outs on the show and access to a new little sub podcast we're going to do. Yes. Some, right. some things that we call reflections, right? Yes. It's the podcast within the podcast. <laughs> and you get some extra content. There's going to yep. be... You're going to be able to access more content, we can say. Yes. And some of it will be, hopefully, will be interesting. You know? It'll be good. And the thing about Reflections, this little sub-series, it's basically going to be, so we've talked about a lot of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But clearly there's not all there is to say about all that stuff. No. <laughs> so the point of the Reflections sub-series is that for those of you guys who subscribe, you'll have access to an occasional, maybe once a month or something like this, where we'll reflect on a previous conversation we had um, now that we've had more time to think about it. Exactly. And not just talking about the topic again, but the thing that I'm looking forward to is actually like listening to how our conversation went yep. and kind of maybe drawing attention to things that happen specifically in that conversation. Exactly. So it's going to be two levels, right? We're going to review yes. a topic yep. possibly and see if we still are, you know, in the same line of thought as before yeah, or maybe yeah. just get a little bit deeper into some aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, maybe holding each other accountable for what we said the two times maybe. before. Right? Maybe. Uh, but yeah. Cool. So that'll, that'll be fun. And now to the proper the serious stuff to the proper stuff right the scary and stuff the scary stuff so today i want to say we're going to do once more just like we did uh in the past two episodes on final we're going to do like what we can call philosophy proper mm -hmm. meaning not that what we do usually is not proper but <laughs> just fake <laughs> it's not that it's fake but um we're dealing with in the case of phenomenology, we dealt with a specific uh, school of philosophy mm -hmm. 
um, that, and if you heard it, you know, the complications that were there, the many distinctions that we made and, you know, trying to figure out to, to capture the real spirit of the thing. Mm-hmm. Today we're going to do something similar, but instead of talking of a school of philosophy, we're going to talk of a specific philosopher, and even more specifically, we're going to talk about a specific book from a philosopher. And tell them why we're doing that. And we're doing that because it's the 100th year, year since this book has been published. And it's a book that is very influential, was very influential in the 20th century, philosophy of the 20th century, and it is by a philosopher that is by no doubt one of the most influential uh, of the 20th century and still his influence is still here. We can say that in a way he's the one that partially at least creates the split between analytics and continental mm. at the beginning but then now analytic philosophers think that he's continental. Somehow. Yeah, and this is we're going to talk about this in the future too. Yes, yes, we should. We should. But the name of the philosopher is Ludwig Wittgenstein. Complicated long name. A little bit. Uh, and the book is the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, which came out in 1921. It's been 100 years. That's crazy. Uh, that, that's crazy, right? And he was coming out of a world war where he participated mm-hmm. <clears throat> actually was you know all the way in the back and he wanted to go to the first line of of you know to the front line he did uh interesting character Wittgenstein as well i would mm-hmm. say but as you i usually say the biography of the philosopher is not that important yeah we need to get to the to the meat stuff yeah so in general the topic of the book, I feel like it's kind of interesting because it intersects many things. Mm-hmm. It has to do with logic, obviously, yeah. but it also has to do with language. Yes. And it has to do with metaphysics. Yes, and philosophy in general, the scope and what philosophy should or shouldn't do. Yeah, so we're talking about reality, language about reality, true yeah. things about reality, what even that means. Yeah, and... Uh well, we can say a couple of things about the book in general. It is written in a very peculiar way, isn't it? Yes. it's uh, So you know how sometimes when we read stuff in philosophy, it's usually in the form of like an essay where someone is like, here's my thesis and I'm going to argue for it in different ways. Or it's more creative, like Descartes taking you through these thought yep. experiments. Or it's uh, aphorisms mm-hmm. like Nietzsche doing this stuff. Uh, but what Wittgenstein is doing here is he's setting things up like a mathematical argument. Yep. And if any of you guys have ever read Spinoza, yes, he also writes in this where there's like an axiom, right? There's like a principle, number one, and then number 1.1, and then number 1.01, right? And things like that. Yeah. Instead, Wittgenstein, instead of calling them axiom and anything like that, writes propositions. Yes. And there are seven main propositions yes only seven propositions and th- and by the way we should let everyone know this is supposed to be totalizing yes this is the entire reality exactly contained within these seven propositions exactly there are seven propositions and then there are sub propositions where he kind of explains a little bit more what he means or at least he gives more context mm-hmm uh, so, for example, there's proposition number one, and then there's going to be proposition 1.1. <laughs> right. And then there's going to be proposition 1.11. Mm-hmm. 
and go and down this way. And then you start again with proposition number two and so on. Yes. So we're going to go over those things. Yes. And we're not just going to like read a dry list. Of course not. No. Hopefully not. No, of course not. It's going to be difficult, but there's going to be crazy stuff. Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, and I think that a good place to start it is the very beginning of the book, would mm-hmm. you say? Maybe the preface? Uh, yeah. So what is, what is your general vibe of what's happening? Because he says in the beginning, you know, this book is not going to be understood by everybody. Yeah, that sounds like Zarathustra, right? It's, it sounds like a lot of philosophers, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, it's only going to be understood by people who maybe have been crazy enough to have these same thoughts as me. Yeah. And he, he's saying pretty much, he's, you know, he's putting his hands forward to say, hey, wait a minute here. This is not, not everyone is going to like it. Not mm-hmm. everybody's going to understand it. Mm-hmm. And the only people that understand, that will understand this, they have to be at least in my same wavelength. Yes. They might be thinking the same way as I do. Um, and then I think if you go a little bit down, where he says the book wants to trace, what is it, where is it? Yeah, you want to, you want to. Yeah, I mean, he's basically, he says the book will draw a limit to thinking, or rather not to thinking, but to the expression of thoughts. So in other words, he's trying to figure out what is the the scope and the limitation of human thinking. Exactly. So it's trying to understand if there are certain things that cannot be taught by us. Mm-hmm. If there are certain things that we think we're thinking of things, instead we're thinking of nothing. Right. And he's saying, and immediately it's like he catches himself again. It's like, no, we're not going to put a limit on thinking, but rather on the way we express thinking. Mm. Because in order to limit thinking, we should be beyond it, right? And and we've mentioned this in the yeah. podcast before, right? Yes. This idea that to understand a system fully, you have to go beyond the system. Correct. So he's not, he can't do that. He's just saying... While I'm working within this system that we call thought, exactly. here's the best we can explain it. And the best we can do is to limit, to trace the limit of language, rather. Yes. Between what makes sense and what, does, what doesn't have sense. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to kind of, and it reminds me again of a lot of philosophers. Hume does something similar. Mm-hmm. There are some propositions that are nonsense. Mm-hmm. So drawing on that, on that tradition... He says, like, well, there are some things that we think have meaning that have no meaning at all. Mm-hmm. And philosophy is <clears throat> full of these things, right? I think he says it in the preface again, if I remember correctly. Uh, when he says, if this book has a value, right? Uh, where is it? If this work has value, it consists in two things. First, that in it, thoughts are expressed right and this value will be the greater the better the thoughts are expressed and the more uh danielle is being hit on the head um here i'm conscious that i have fallen fall short far short of the possible simply because my powers are insufficient to cope with the task so he's saying hey there are thoughts there and thoughts should be expressed clear but unfortunately i am unable to be as clear as i could uh, and then he says, maybe others. So the bottom line is like, we're trying to figure out what exactly thinking is. Yes. And he's going to say it has something to do with language. Yes. And all of reality could somehow 
for lack of a better term, I don't know if he would like this, mm-hmm. be reduced yes. to linguistic propositions. We, at least what we can access. And if something cannot be put into that, it's not real. Well, mm, kind of, because at mm-hmm. the end it will say that there are some things that cannot be put into thought, okay. into language, but we can, we can, we shouldn't speak about those. Because we don't know. Because we can only kind of point at that. Mm-hmm. Like towards the end, and again, maybe... Well, it doesn't matter if we go if we skip forward or not, right? Yeah. Well, let's let's look at just the first thing he says. Yeah. Right? Because he breaks down again all of reality into these seven propositions. Exactly. And I feel like this is a pattern that a lot of philosophers I mean, and you could argue that every <laughs> metaphysician is trying to encompass everything in these principles. Like yes. Kant does it with the categories, Hume does it in a way, uh, who I'm thinking, what's his name? Carnap does it with the universal sentence. Yeah. Chalmers tries to do it in a way that's better than Carnap. Um, so the very first thing Wittgenstein wants to assert is this idea that the world mm-hmm. is everything that is the case. Yes. So. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, what does that mean? It means that everything that it's happening, everything that's there, that's what the world is. Okay. In fact, you will move on, and the very next subproposition says that the world is the totality of facts, mm-hmm. not things. So whatever is happening, whatever it's there, that's the world. Which I think it's interesting because it's telling us that's not a collection of things that makes the world. Sometimes we think of the world as this container mm-hmm. where different things are in, right? Like there's the world and then there is the table that's in the world and we are in the world. It says it's not that. Mm-hmm. The world is not that. The world is other is rather this. Those things that are happening there. So it's more performative if you want. It's not, it's not just a collection of objects. It's the relation between objects and people that make the world. So that's already uh, interesting because that is kind of a dispute that happens in the history of philosophy where there's some people that say, no, the things are the reality, right? The, mm-hmm. Like absolutists, if you will, Yeah. When it, whether it be like space or time or whatever. And then you have the people that say, no, 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 no. Reality is not the things. It, it only is there when the things interact. Yes, and that is more... Well, it's similar to what he would say. Objects are still there. Mm-hmm. Objects are the bricks. But in order to talk about a world, we need to talk about the, the, the relation between those bricks. Otherwise, it's just a collection of stuff. Of just kind of unconnected things. Correct. So I had a question about some of these, some of these ideas. Um, when we say the world is everything is the case, here are a couple of thoughts I had. When we say what is the case, are we talking about what is actual or are we talking about uh, true statements about what is actual? Well, I think he's talking about what is actual, but also what it could be. <laughs> what could be, <laughs> it could, right? Because it's like it makes a difference if you say the world is all actual things, right? Like the totality of things yes. versus the world is the totality of correct propositions or claims about things. So I don't, well, 
Yeah, there are two different things, but I don't yeah. think he's claiming the second one just yet, at least. But right now, he's just claiming that the world is the totality of the relationships mm-hmm. that occur between things. Mm-hmm. And so, it will, to be more precise, I think he thinks that the world is the totality of the relationships. Facts. Between those things that he calls facts. Yeah, this was this was like tricky for me because I think that word fact, it i it, it sometimes we use you know how we, we conflate truth and actuality? Yeah. Right? We'll be like, oh, the truth is in the language about the reality. Yeah. I feel like fact is a similar thing, right? I don't know if by fact we mean something that is happening or mm-hmm. we mean like, oh, I accurately described the thing that is happening. Because if it's in that second one, we get in this weird conundrum where we say, if if truth is the only thing that's in reality, there's no false things in reality. Hmm, no, he will definitely say there are false things in reality. That's kind of what I was thinking. Yes. And I think that he's... So one of the interesting things he says, again, if we can read Proposition 1.12, one two. Okay, and what does he say there? <laughs> no, I don't. I have the Italian version. I need. Oh uh, wait, ooh, can you, wait. Can you read it in Italian? I feel like people are gonna like that. Ah, uh, sure. Che la totalità dei fatti determina ciò che accade e anche tutto ciò che non accade. Different. That's sound. Uh, people are gonna be excited that you did that. Um, so. Go ahead. Go ahead. One point one one, right? No, one point one two. This is so funny. So the totality of facts. Uh, determines both what is the case and also all that is not the case. And so this seems to settle this issue because it's like whatever is, is the arbiter of disputes when you're trying to say something's true or false. Yes. Because it's true or false only if it accurately depicts that thing that is. So to give an example, you know, if I say um, the interface is on the table, Mm -hmm. okay, how do we know if that's true? How do we know that's false? We need the referee. Well, the referee, so to speak, is just the actual state of affairs happening. Exactly. And if the thing matches the thing I said, Mm -hmm. we call it a fact. If Mm -hmm. it doesn't, then we don't, which means there are facts. He's definitely not, because we said everything's relational. Yes. People might be like, oh, so he's a relativist. No, absolutely not. So that's not what we mean. (laughs) No, by relational, I mean among things. So, for example, he says, uh, you might say the interface is one object, mm-hmm. and the table is another object, right? Those two things are objects. They're sim- more or less simple objects, right? Now, if we just talk about interface and table, we don't have a world yet. Mm-hmm. The world happens between the interaction between the two. So the moment the interface is on the table, then we start talking about the world. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I think the interesting thing is that he says the totality of facts determine what is and what is not which goes in the direction of what you always say that the the laws are not contradiction and all those things they're undisputable mm-hmm. because he's saying that the, the fact that the interface is on the table determines not only that this is true but determines also the fact that the interface is not under the table mm-hmm. or somewhere else so he's determining everything mm-hmm. even what is not right yeah, because when you have a, a fact, right, like mm-hmm. a thing that's true about something, it has to, in a way, contain everything else that's true yes. about that thing, which is exactly yes. what you're saying. So it's like to be 
in my hand. Is the case, right? So, right. So the bottle is in your hand mm -hmm. is what is the case. Right. And at the same time, that determines what? The fact that the bottle is not... Is not not in my hand. Exactly. So it determines also yeah. what is not the case. Right. So he has this, this interesting idea that the, like, all possible facts yes. are kind of... All possible facts about something are already contained in, like, yes. the instance of the object relation. Is that right? Yes. And there's also another wrench that he throws into this, which is, you know, you can infer this from the following proposition. And we, I promise we won't do this for everyone. But the first few of them, we need to do that. And he said that facts in the logical space are the world. <laughs> yes. Which sounds strange, which mm -hmm. is also adding the level of our approach to stuff. So those things are there, can, can only be facts if somehow we have an access through them, through our logical shape, the way you're thinking. So that's my question. What, wh how would we describe what a logical space is? The, right, because well, does this imply that there's a non-logical space? Or that this is the only possible space that there is. That is the only possible space for us. But I I think that as he was saying in the preface, with thought in general, the same thing goes with logic. We cannot speak of a non-logical space mm -hmm. because to do that, we should think illogically, which mm -hmm. is impossible for us. So it's not there. It's not. We cannot even talk about that thing. So basically, we could say thinking only happens um, in accordance with some basic structures. Absolutely. Right? And so think of thought like a cookie, and then the logical space is like the cookie cutter that's determining the shape of the cookie. Right? Correct. So what he's saying here is basically your thoughts aren't infinite, right? They're like the same way that your doorknob can't cook you dinner, right? It's like not in the doorknob. Yeah. Or um, your iPad can't tuck in your children, right? Like there's, the program has parameters. Yes. So thinking also has parameters. So it can only do things within those parameters. And, and that, that parameter, right, like the kind of limit of those parameters is what he's calling logical space. Correct. And to be fair, you will say eventually that we can't even talk about logical space because mm. that's the limit mm -hmm. of what we're taught. We can only talk about, again, proposition, the world, and all this kind of stuff because they are inside this logical space. Mm -hmm. However, the border or the space itself, empty of everything else, is not something that we can talk about. In the same way that the cookie can't really talk about the, the, the shape of it because that's what it is. Yes. Only the person with the, the shape outside of the cookie cutter is able to know like what that shape is like. Exactly. So, exactly. so God, right? He's not talking exactly. about that. But. No, no. But that's, that's what he's saying. We're saying we, are, we have limitations and the limitations are determined by what we think. Mm -hmm. And that is it. That's all. That, that's our, and what we think is limited for what we can say, by what we can say. You can't exit it. You're nope. always already inside this thing that's pinning you 
to being in a certain way. And uh, so, out of curiosity, what do you, how do you feel about this idea that we are like? I think it's true. There's I, n- there's no way out of that. Yeah, I absolutely. I think he. So this is something that I have arrived at maybe in a different way. Um, like for me, it, it's it's Kant, right? Yeah. Um, so it's a similar idea. The idea is that when you perceive something, when you think of something, when you say something, you have to realize you're not just getting like a thing, free-floating, an infinite whatever. Like you're always getting it through a window. And so I think this is... What, this is Wittgenstein's way of talking about that window in which space happens. And like you said, this is the logical laws, right? No matter what you think, they will be true, right? A is A. A is not not A. There's no way to go outside of it. Yep. And you could try all you want, but even your quote-unquote critiques are already going to have the things you're supposedly critiquing within them. Yeah, and I think that even... I can say even more, right? I think he doubles down on this and he says, there's really, really no way that you can do that. Mm-hmm. That is our, it's a strong limit, right? Mm-hmm. With Kant, you have the thing in itself that maybe it's out there. It's like, we can even say those things. We we shouldn't, to be fair to Kant, he kind of says the same thing. It's like, they're mm-hmm. there, but whatever. Wittgenstein mm-hmm. is like, they are there, possibly, but we can't even talk about those things. Right. We shouldn't even mention them. Right, right. Because that's nonsense again. Which is, it says something about the idea that he has or the fact that we cannot, and I, I think similarly to Kant as well, there's no exceeding our limits. Yes. There's no trying hard enough and move on from yeah. that, right? It's not that we can finally technologically advance. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, that's a hard limit. It's like gravity. <laughs> yeah, I, I always it's say it's a hard limit. It's like it's not because you're not creative enough. Exactly. It's not because you're not trying too hard, right? People, people will, people. I feel like students and people in general are really enamored by this idea that, you know, the fake statistic like you only use a certain amount of your brain. <laughs> like that'll get brought up in class, and I'll be like, "Well, that's not actually true." And they'll be like, "Well, yeah, it is." And I'm like, "What? what how are you telling me this? Where did you get that?" <laughs> So they'll be like, if only we could tap into that. No, the point is all of those things, even if there were unused parts, are still happening within the rules of the game. Exactly. And so Wittgenstein doesn't say this one directly, but if you think of you know, the identity and non-contradiction, no matter how creative you are, you can't get out of these two rules that one, the thing you're indicating is that thing and two that that thing is different from another thing exactly it's a hard line yeah and he will we wouldn't talk about this directly but again he talks about tautologies and contradictions which is taking consideration exactly what you're talking about Mm -hmm. and and i find it interesting that because as you're saying we are we've gotten in the past 20 years probably a little bit more in this headspace where we think that we can tech <laughs> our mm. way out of everything right and that it's only about matter of time we'll figure it out a different way we're gonna do something and creativity is gonna save us and this is again there is no way out of this yeah. this is a hard limit it's like tech technology is not a, 
a transcendent thing. Correct. Right? That's a thing we make, and so it still follows the same rules. And it goes beyond gravity, right? Because you could imagine, I always say, you could imagine that I let go of the thing in my hand and it floats up, right? So the laws of gravity are not absolute enough, right? Yeah. Whereas the laws of logic, you, it literally is unimaginable for them to be false. These are the yeah. true a priori things. Exactly. And again, there is no way. It's impossible to think any differently. Right, <laughs> as, right, as you're right. Saying, right. You can ima- Can you imagine the law of non-contradiction not to work? Can't. I don't know how. Right, <laughs> I mean, right. even to express that will be. But again, to be fair to Wittgenstein, he would say that even the law of non-contradiction, we can kind of understand it by stating it, but it's not necessarily com- easy for us to explain. Mm-hmm. It cannot be explained because it's part of. It's that border. Mm-hmm. It's the cookie cutter, right? Mm-hmm. And it's difficult for us to talk about that. Yeah. Um, I also think that this ties into into this distinction that he's talking about the world, right? Because at this point, it's you know, we're talking about facts. We're talking about our relationship to that. Uh, and then I think in proposition number two mm-hmm. is when he explains exactly what a fact is, right? And he's, yeah. Ahead. What is the case? Yeah. A fact is the existence of atomic facts. But I feel like there's different translations yes. of this, which I ran yes. into. And I actually pulled up uh, the different translations. So one form of this says, and this is the Ogden translation, what is the case, the fact, yes. is the existence of atomic facts. Hmm. So that's interesting for several reasons. And the other translation is, what is the case, a fact is the existence of states of affairs. I so the, I like that second one better. The second one is the correct translation from German. Okay, because I didn't look at the German. I, I feel like I would have needed 18 <laughs> years to do that. But uh, yeah, the difference is the one is saying the fact versus a fact. Mm-hmm. And clearly he's just talking about any fact, right? Mm-hmm. So I think a fact is right. And I did think the usage of that word atomic was weird because that seems to indicate something independent. And you will, it's, and they're not; they're contextual. No, exactly, and he will talk about atomic facts in other circumstances, which is not this, though. Yeah. So, so a fact is is the existence of states of affairs. Exactly. Okay. In and, other words, things happening in actuality. Yes, and. The very next one, 2.01, it says that a set of affair is a relationship between objects. Yep. So that's what a state of affair is. So yep. the, the interface is on the table. That's a state of affair. Yeah, and if you're wondering, because I, I feel like a lot of the times, maybe I'm, I'm assuming this has got to be happening for people <laughs> listening, if you're not like already super into logic, the language sounds funny, right? Because sometimes they use words and phrases that aren't intuitive, like whose meaning is not intuitive. So you're like, states of affairs? What do you mean? <laughs> That's a fancy way of saying, like, what is happening? <laughs> that, that, I feel like that's the best way of saying it. Stuff yep. that happens. Yes. And what do we mean, stuff that happens? Well, anything you see. Yeah. Right. Anything you perceive with your senses, anything you think, yeah. 
anything, right? This is anything you experience is a state of affairs. Exactly. You're never not experiencing a state of affairs. Correct. Every, everything that, again, <laughs> facts, which is everything that exists, which makes up the world. Yes. Are state of affairs, this, the existence of state of affairs or this relationship. So only if you were, not even, I was about to say, only if you are immersing nothingness, there are no mm -hmm. state of fear. But that will be false because you will still be in a relationship with, with this nothing. nothingness. Right, right, so right. There, it's, a, it's a one of those other impossibility, mm. the non-being immersed in a state of affair. And so an example would, again, let's let's use our thing, the interface. That's, that's already a weird word. I'm going to stop saying that. <laughs> the cup, <laughs> my teacup is on the table. That's that's a state of affairs. That's a thing that's happening in the world. And it's a relation between objects. In yes. this case, the cup and the table. Yes. And we're saying, so you have these two things, right? A and B. And A, or, a and B are in a certain relation together. Now, yes. what Wittgenstein is ultimately going to say, literally all of reality is that. Yes. It's something or some set of things being in a certain relation with another thing or a certain set of things. And that's that's that. <laughs> <laughs> that is it. And I think that even, again, we say these things and then I think of what, what he says and I always keep on thinking, and he doubles down on that. Yeah, yeah. Because then he says something like that if we have all objects, if we have knowledge of all objects, if all objects are given mm -hmm. somehow, he says, well, then... We are. We have already a list of all possible states of affair. Yes, because all potential actualities have to already be contained in the object, right? Because yes. he says basically, like a necessary condition of an object as such yes. is it's containing all possible relations factually exactly. with exactly. it, right? Exactly. So, an object already has, already gives you. All the applications. That, oh, everything you need. <laughs> right? It tells you, like, you know, cup. I can use it to drink, to put things in it, to put it, I don't know, uh, to put it under a plate, to put elevate it. On your head. It, to, yeah, you can use it on your head to, to, to make it a funny hat, you know. <laughs> you can use it, you know, to recycle and make this and make that. All the possibility are in the structure of that thing. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can say, you're going to use a cup to fly, right? Mm -hmm. It's given. So... If you're giving all the objects, if all the objects are present, mm -hmm. then you have all the possibilities, all the possible worlds are yes. there, right? Which is interesting because it's saying that with the knowledge of the, how can we say, or the elements of the world, we can have just the knowledge of the entire, of what can ever happen in the world, right? Yeah, everything is given in the stuff and if something quote unquote new yes gets figured out it's not actually new right it's a discovery yes and but a discovery is you figuring out something that's already there not introducing something new so what he'll say is there can never be a new fact exactly about the world because anything that all any fact that could possibly be already is in the world you just may not realize it yet. Which is, again, once more, 
strange for us. We're not acquainted with that way of thinking anymore because we're always thinking of the fact that innovation mm-hmm. can create something new almost, right? Right, yeah, good point. Well, instead, Wittgenstein is saying, nope. Yeah, maybe you're <laughs> actualizing a concept, but like the essence of that concept, the possibility of it was already there. So Wi-Fi was already there in 1940. Yes. We just didn't actualize it until, and it wasn't because we needed something that didn't exist. Yep. It already existed. We put it, we put it those objects in the right uh, configuration to create the state of affair which Wi-Fi is. Which means there's no such thing as a process of coming from non-existence to existence. The only process is coming from possible existence to actual existence or something like that. Exactly. Or so, manifested existence. So everything is already here. Everything. That's, that's, I mean, that's not easy to digest, I, th- I feel, right? I mean, it, it solves a problem. The problem, it's, you know how people ask this question, um, oh, why is there something rather than nothing, right? Like Heidegger talks about it, everyone talks yeah. about it. Holt talks about it in that text. Yeah. Um, everyone always has that question, how did the universe start? Like, how did something come from nothing? In other words, how do you start with a zero and go to a one? Because you could add as many zeros as you'd like and you'd never get anything other than a zero. And Wittgenstein's answer here is well, that that question doesn't apply to reality because nope. it's never it was never zero. <laughs> it was never zero. It was it was something becoming <laughs> some form of the something that it always possibly was. Exactly. Not something coming from nothing. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Which this implies also that those things that we call objects, they are kind of the bedrock of this reality, right? Mm-hmm. They're the simplest element. That exist for him, they're like the atoms of reality, right? Yeah, and the states of affairs would be the molecules, so Correct. to speak. Correct. Okay. And uh, um, again, I'm wondering how this, if this still flies today, right? Hmm. And I'm wondering if this way of thinking still is acceptable, quote unquote. If we not in an ethical sense, but rather if we still think within that frame, or if we're more prone to think like no. There are such things as inventions. No, there are some things that are more, ba- more basic than objects. And what would mm. that mean? I'm not sure. I'm, I can. I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Well, so two things, and, uh, an example and also a question. So if we're still wondering, like, well, what do you mean everything's already in stuff? Go back to the cup, right? Yeah. Like you said, the cup could be in your hand. The cup could be on your head. The cup could be broken. The cup could be in the air for a second when you throw it. The point is that all of that stuff must already be in the cup as a possible thing that could happen. Because if it wasn't, then it couldn't happen, right? Like a a thing can't do a thing. If there's not already, if the thing isn't allowed to do it, so to speak. And this leads me to the question, um, what is a thing, (laughs) right? (laughs) What is an object? Is he talking about the concrete particular physical cup or is he talking about the concept of cup Uh, or both? I think it's, well, I think that one is, to use his words, one is the image of the other. The picture. The picture, Mm, right? Yeah. So I think that maybe... It's, and it's it's interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it would say both. One, as 
one is the cup itself as an object, but also the conceptual cup mm-hmm. is still an object too. Right. So that oh, that universal, it, it has to be right because we can think it. Yes. We can speak about the concept. Yes. So it must be within reality because if it wasn't, we couldn't think or speak about it. So, if we're talking of an apple, Go referring back, right, to, that, to something that we we discussed today, right? If we're thinking of an apple, the actual apple, the physical apple, mm-hmm. that is an object, and it exists within the world because mm-hmm. of that, and he enters into all sorts of a state of affairs, blah, 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 blah. And then there is the concept of the apple, which he thinks is also like the word apple. Fudge. Mm-hmm. And he says that that thing, though, is not an object, the concept, but it is rather a fact. About the object. Yeah. It is a fact, which is still part of the world, but it is a fact because it's a relation between what? Between hmm. the object itself and us and the way in which we... Okay. I have a question about that, yeah. actually. Okay. Because I was wondering, I was mulling this, because I, like, I only showed you a fraction of it, but I was taking a lot of notes, right? <laughs> I was like, let me, let me do it step by step here. Yeah. And then after a while, I was like, I have to stop and just re- like, look at the whole thing generally <laughs> so I kind of know what's yeah. coming and so I don't want to die. But uh, so I noticed you said this is the the cup is the object, whereas the the thought, the universal concept, the form, if you will, of cup is not an object, but it can be involved in facts. It's a it is a fact itself. It's a fact itself. So my question is. How is that possible? Um, Because. If something is a fact, mustn't it be re- a relation? Mm-hmm. And is the concept of cup by itself a relation? The concept of cup by itself, it is a relation. Because it's it can only be there if we experience the particular cup, you're saying? I Yeah. The, it, okay. Again, pictures, images are models of reality. Right, they're representations. Yeah, representations. So a representation must be a representation of something. Correct. By someone. Okay. So what would what do you think Wittgenstein would say here, another idea I had, about not relations of objects, but relations of ideas, to use Hume's language. In so, other words, triangles have less sides than squares, right? That's a relation of ideas. Yes. Because I'm not talking about a particular thing out in the world. Um, obviously Hume says this is a priori knowledge, so would Kant. I think so, so would he. But the question is, 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 is that proposition uh, that all triangles have less size than all triangles, is that, a f- is that not a relation of objects or is that a relation of facts? So the proposition will be, first of all, a fact itself. Right. And it will be talking of, relation of facts facts. describing the eventual state of affair that exists Hmm. if we think the triangles and squares are objects because if we think that those things are conceptual realities if Mm -hmm. they are part of the language of logic Mm -hmm. then we are talking about something different here those are those things that we can kind of 
don't we, we are unable to explain fully at least right because okay. they're part of those those borders but i think that the first one is the correct one i think that they are so relations hume's relations of ideas just become relations of fact i would think so yes i'm i'm sure that some Wittgenstein has expert will be like oh, i don't know about that right but, right right but, but for our purposes. for our purposes it's like that yes okay and then there is you know it goes on about this relationship between pictures, images, and facts, right? Yeah. And by picture, he means like a, like a thought yeah. or, a word or a word or a symbol. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's three things. And he says something interesting to me. He says something like that the images have something in common with the represented thing. Mm-hmm. And the something in common is the logical form of refiguration <laughs> yeah what does that mean what does that mean it, i think if i'm not mistaken it means something like the the logical that, that somehow the picture has to mimic yes the way in which the world is made as well right so think about it in terms of a literal picture for the second right let's say i have my hand and then we get out my Polaroid and take a picture of the hand and it instantly prints. And then we have the, the picture of my hand, right? It's like, what is the relationship between those two things? And you say, oh, well, the one is a representation of the other. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Does it mean an accurate copy? The most accurate a copy could be of the thing it's copying? Not necessarily. It means that there is, there, there are just... How can we say? It's representing the most important things correctly, I think. So maybe we say the logical form that's captured is the facts about it? Is the relation? They they both present to you some set of object relations just in a different way? Yeah. Right? So like if if my actual hand, you could say, oh... Um, it's wearing a watch, it's wearing a wedding ring, I have my fingers in this specific configuration, it's on the table. And in the picture, you could also see those things. Yes. So they both share that. But there are obviously also differences between the two, right? Right, because one is like celluloid. Exactly. And not flesh, right? Okay. I think that that's that's partially the uh, difference you can say that you can see there. As you can see, listeners, this is difficult. <laughs> this is not easy, but I think it's interesting now. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Because you're you're asking, like, this is, I feel like people don't usually, because the analytics are very big on, uh, so they claim, <laughs> uh, there are no metaphysics isn't a thing. Yeah. Right? It's not an actual, brand. We're, we're post-metaphysics, right? But this is totally metaphysics. Well, it would, they, I would say it's logic, but <laughs> which to me is always like, well, <laughs> aren't they the same? Right, because it's ultimately a ontology. Yeah, logical ontology. Or something. <laughs> I, again, you're not going to see any objection from my side. Yeah, it's just interesting uh, regarding this. So we did the the first three propositions. Uh, yeah, T- two two ish slash three ish. Two ish. So <laughs> I'm wondering. We should continue this, like if there are any concluding things we want to generally say about these things. So so he wants to say the thing we call the world 
is just the sum total of everything that is. Yes. Right? And he wants to say everything that is, well, that's what a fact is. Yes. And a fact is states of affairs yes. or things happening. Yes. Which means relations of things. Yes. Okay. And then the picture of these facts that we take, it's kind of a metaphor there, is thought. Yeah. The logical picture of facts is thought. The logical picture. So maybe we can talk more about picture and also these later ideas because um, well, from my angle, I could see that one of these propositions looks like another language. <laughs> sure. It's like math. <laughs> we can do that. Uh, should we do the next episode? Yeah, I think so. All right. See you later. See ya. Yeah.